Good afternoon or good morning or whatever whatever it is. Uh, I am really glad to be here. Also scared to be here. Uh, Gary Bookman called me and said, you want to speak? I said, well, I don't know. Uh, but I made a promise a long time ago when I was at a maze that the Lord would give me opportunities that I would go ahead and do that even if I was scared. So hopefully the Lord's going to be here. His Holy Spirit's going to carry us through. Uh, and hopefully we will learn about who God is. Uh, we'll be able to see a little bit uh, about how great the God and salvation that we have. I'm especially glad that my family has, has arrived. They're sitting in the black section of the church. <laughs> uh, Y'all get to meet them. And especially I have my, my great aunt who's there, the younger sister of my grandmother, who uh, I uh, dearly love has really encouraged me in the Lord. Uh, she is just like I love her very much. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to look at uh, uh, Luke 15. Uh, I put it as, as a title, So You Say You Won't Dance. Uh, it's kind of taken off of, the, of the, the TV shows, all the dancing shows that are going around, and we'll get to that later on in the story. I promise I will not get up here and start doing any kind of dancing or anything like that. That'll make me even more nervous. <laughs> but let's go ahead and get started. There was a bum who lived near Fulton Fish Market in Manhattan, on the east side of Manhattan. Early one morning he rose. He, he woke up and he started his daily routine. He would go to a dumpster, sit through a dumpster, find what he can find, eat what he can stomach, and put it in the bag. He would kind of go through different things, find things that he could use, and stick it in his bag. And he came across this ticket. It was a lottery ticket from day before. He grabbed it out of force habit, stuck it in his pocket. The whole day goes by, and he nearly forgot about this, this lottery and he picks it out of his pocket and he says, oh, I need to check this. So he goes to one of the, one of the local um, newsstands and starts checking that number. So he's, he's comparing the numbers, four numbers, five numbers, six numbers, seven numbers. Could it be true? This man just won a lot. Later on that day, he's standing in front of all these lights. And all these news cameras are on him. And he's standing there with toothless, dirty, baggy jeans. Thrilled. And somebody asked him, how do you feel? How do you feel? And he responds, I feel like a man who has been to the edge of starvation and back. And is beginning to fathom that he'll never feel hungry again. You think that that individual was doing some dancing at the end of that day? Probably that he do a little dance, and then he's probably getting all excited. So excited because his life had been changed. He no longer has to go behind a dumpster and find his nourishment for the day. His life had been totally, totally changed. He would receive 243 thousand dollars a year for the next 20 years. Set up for life. His life had been totally changed. There's a quote that says, you and I have not known the gospel until it seems unreasonably good to be true. You haven't known the heart of God until it makes you want to dance. You and I have not known the gospel until it seems unreasonably good to be true. You haven't known the heart of God until it makes you want to dance. Jesus is a master at telling stories. He's able to kind of paint the picture and really pinpoint the issue and the heart that he needs to pinpoint. And the story that we're going to look at today is part of a series of three. It's the last of the three. And what he does is he pinpoints the heart of the audience that had gathered around Jesus. 
Before we get into that story, it's important for us to look at the background, to look at where this, who, who is the audience, who is he speaking to, who is he addressing, so that we can get a clear understanding of what the impact would be on the listeners and how it might affect us. <coughs> If you look at uh, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, it reads, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. You see, there's two groups there that we see. The first group seems like Jesus is always being surrounded by a large group of people. Um, and the first group that he talks about are tax collectors and sinners. These were the unaccepted. Culturally, these are individuals who either didn't observe the moral law of the Bible or the rules put forth by their religious leaders. These were the shameful women who have come to, to Christ. Maybe people who were caught in adultery. These were the people who were maybe the deaf, the blind, the sick, the lame, the lepers, the tax collectors. All these groups of people have found Jesus to be absolutely attractive. There was something about this man that just thrilled their heart and they wanted to be around him. And you see them following him all over the place. And then there's the other group. There's the Pharisees and the expert in the law of the Lord. These are those who have kept the morality of their upbringing. They have studied and they observed scripture. They have worshipped faithfully and prayed consistently. They were the ones who were disgusted by Christ's acceptance. They were repulsed by the people who were attracted to Jesus. You hear them saying, this man Welcome sinners and eat with them. They're in the crowd and you see the Pharisees and they, and they look around and they say, Look at this man. What is he doing accepting these kind of people? It repulsed them that he would accept them and even further than that, sit with them. Who is the parable directed to? Well, Luke 15, 3 says, So Jesus told them this parable. Who is this them that he, that he says? Well, I think at minimum, it is for the leadership. But I also think it's directed to those who Jesus was attracted. Those sinners, those tax collectors. Imagine that just as Jesus was able to hear their comments and their grumblings, the people who were caught in adultery, the prostitutes, the lepers, were able to hear these Pharisees say, I can't believe that this guy would sit with them, that he would eat with them. And the shame and the guilt that they must have felt was immense. And they needed to know what God thinks about them. They needed to know the heart of God just as well as the Pharisees needed to know the heart of God. It is said, and John, John Mark uh, mentioned this a couple weeks ago in a worship service, that selfishness and pride are two sides of the same coin called sin. Selfishness and pride are two sides of the same coin called sin. So today we will look at both sides. We're going to look at both pride and we're also going to look at selfishness. The seemingly acceptable and unacceptable. The God who loves them both and the reason we all should dance. The reason that we all have to be 
dancing individuals. When we come to, to the story of the prodigal son, and I don't imagine that I'm going to be able to teach you anything that's going to be new about this passage. It's a pretty familiar passage, but I pray that you will be reminded and that your heart will be challenged about how good God's heart is and what that looks like in life. So we come to the older, to the younger son. When we first meet him, he is anxious to get out into life. Like a lot of young people, is anxious to get out there. And he believes that life outside of his father's presence is where fulfillment is found. You remember what it's like to get out of your parents' house. You're kind of like, oh, I need to get away from my parents. They know nothing about life. <laughs> I need to get out and do my own thing. Life outside of mom and dad's presence is so much better than with them. And he believes that lie, that life is found outside of his father's presence. So what does he do? He says, Father, give me the share of the estate that belongs to me. He boldly comes before his father and says, give me the share that belongs to me. He says, the share of the estate, that word estate means life. He demands life from his father. And he journeys out to spend in freedom away from his father, out from underneath his rule. He goes out and he, can, and he considers, by doing what he's doing, he is considering himself to be dead to his father. Inheritance are usually given when? When a father has already passed. He's the younger son. He gets the lesser amount. And for him to come to his father while he's still alive is a very insulting thing to do. Jeff Goins and uh, Lisa were talking about shame cultures. He was shaming his family by asking this making this request, to go out and say, give me my inheritance now. I would rather have your money than be in your presence. I prefer to leave and take, one, take my inheritance than be in your presence. He was considering himself dead to his family. And the culture would be shaped. In his culture, he would be shunned for making such kind of bold uh, statement. And he is dangerously free. If you look at Luke 15, 13, he says, So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered the wealth with a wild lifestyle. That word wild is reckless, abandoned. He wanted to be free out from his father's presence. There's a story about a, um, a skydiver, a videographer who was, who was going on a jump with a skydiving crew. It was supposed to be an eventful deal. They're trying to set some kind of record, make it some kind of formation. And this videographer was very excited about being able to film this. In fact, he worked for a, a television station and they were going to Feeling And so what he does is he's, he's all excited about this. Everybody else jumps out and start the formation. He jumps out, he has his video, and video is going. It's, it's going live. And all of a sudden, the screen goes black. The news anchor has to jump in and say, explain what happened. The man was so excited about being able to be free and experience this excitement that he forgot to pack and prepare the parachute, the very thing that would save his life. And isn't that like sin? Running away from God starts by feeling free and ends up in utter misery, either in this life and the life to come or both. A quote from Piper. Running away from God feels like it's free. 
and ends in utter misery, either in this life and the one to come. So he has demanded life. He's considered himself dead to his father. He's dangerously free. And now he finds himself in a difficult situation after he's gone out for a while. He's desperately in need. Says then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country. He sent him in the field to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the food that the pods of the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to destruction. The story paints that, that great picture, that truth. But there is a way that seems right to us. To live outside of God's presence and to, to believe that lie and the end leads to destruction, either in this life or in the next, or both. So you see the progression of his sin. He has gone out on his own. He has spent everything. Curiously, there is a famine that happens right after the time that there is this he loses money. Then God's hand is in that. After that, he begins to be in need. He's in such need that he's willing to go, coming from a wealthy family, to work with pigs. He's so desperate, such in a desperate state, that he looks at the pigs and he longs for their food. Oh, what a desperate state the son has found himself in. Away from his father's presence. What a gracious father we have who allows us to feel the hungry desperation. Allows us to feel our hunger so that we can seek true satisfaction. What a gracious father that he allows us to feel our hunger so that we can seek satisfaction in him. So he's demanded life from his father. He's dead to his father. He's dangerously free. And now he finds himself in desperate need. Verse 15, uh, verse 17. But when he comes to his senses, he realizes that his situation is not a good situation. So he comes to his senses. He realizes that the life that his, even the slaves were living with his father, or the servants were living with his father, are better than the life that he has here. So he comes to his, he comes to his senses. And he comes up with a plan or a speech. And he says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. He recognizes that he is wrong. That what he did was wrong. I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. It reminds me of what David said after he sinned with Bathsheba. He recognizes that not only that he that he has done something that is wrong, that he is no longer worthy to claim that status of son in his mind. And he wants to work to be in his father's presence. He says, treat me like one of your hired servants, your hired workers. If I can't be your son, I want to be in your presence. And if that means I have to work as a servant, we're not going to take that. But what he received was so much better than anything that he could imagine. What he received was so much better than anything that he could imagine. So he decides he's going to get on this road, he's going to take that journey, he's going to come back home. And as he's making his way back home, what does he come across? 
It becomes, it comes across a father. A father's longing gaze. It says while he was still a far way off, his father had been sitting there waiting, looking, hoping that his son would come back. And when he's way away, the father sees him. And he's looking for him. He's not like a lot of us fathers who have our child had shamed us and had gone out and rebelled us and rebelled against us and made us look so badly in front of everybody. Who would write him off? But this father is special. He's looking for his son. And the father has passion for his son. Not only is he looking for his son, he has passion for his son. He says when he's still a far away, far away off, his heart went out to him. Before he's able to reach him physically, his heart is already there. And his heart goes out to him. James 5.11 says, The Lord is full of compassion. That word from the gut, that compassion that you feel in your gut. God is full of compassion. And his heart goes out to his son. I don't know if you've ever felt that compassion for somebody that hits you right in that gut. That's a picture that he's given. His heart goes out to him. Not only does he have a longing gaze, not only does his heart go, go out to him, he gets up and he starts running. And he runs out. He picks up his long robe and he gets out and he shows his leg, which is not a real dignified thing for a, a man of his age. And he runs. Hopping over fences, knocking over children. He runs. And he goes and he tries and he goes and he wants to get to that son of his. Do you see the picture? An elderly father who had lots of money gets out there and he's running to his son. Not only that, when he reaches his son, what does he do? He gives him a big hug. Now when Aiden was a young child, she's young now, younger than she is, uh, still in diapers, not talking, in the crib, Adrian had gone up to something, she had pictures of speaking at TCA or something like that, and I was in charge of nap time and all that kind of stuff, and I was going to meet her there. So Aiden was back in her room sleeping, quiet there. She's sleeping for a long time. I said, Man, she's sleeping for a long time. Let me go in and check her. And as I opened the door, there was a smell. It was like, what is it? What is the smell? I walked in, I looked closer, and I looked on the on the uh, on the crib. There's number two on the crib, all over the place. I look at my daughter, it's on her hands. It's on her face. Who knows for that one? And she looks up and she sees me and she goes, first thing she goes, Daddy! She didn't talk, but that's essentially what she was saying. And of course I was like, oh uh Picked her up. Went to the tub. This father is not like that. Do you realize where this son is coming from? He's been working with the pigs. So desperate that he's hungry for pigs' food. And what is the first thing that he does when he reaches his son physically? He grabs him and he hugs him. Embraces him. The word it gives a picture of falling on the son's neck. Do you get it? Do you see it? It falls on the son's neck. God doesn't hold us at arm's length in our sin. When we return, he grabs us, holds us close. Doesn't say, go take a shower and come back to me. 
embraces us in our failure. A great God. Not only that, he gives the guy a kiss. Lays a big wet kiss on his son. Dirty, nasty, stinky. But he's overjoyed for his son. You can imagine the repulsive smell and how dirty he looks. And God doesn't hold his affection away from us when we come to him. As dirty and sinful and yucky as we are, this father doesn't hold his affection. I'm sure there's many a person who where he walked by like, no, 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 you don't need to come near me. But this dad hugs Gives him his affection. Matt Chandler, I was listening to a, a message by Matt Chandler. And he was telling about the prodigal son. He was telling about experience he had in college. He went to one of those Love Waits conferences. And he says that his blood boiled when he thinks about this story. He goes there and he actually he brought a friend who was, wasn't a believer and actually had had a child out of wedlock. He's kind of like, I don't know what I was thinking bringing her to this, but he brings her to a Loveweight conference. And the guy gets up, and the first thing that he does, he takes out a rose. And he says, y'all smell this rose? And he gives it to the kids. He says, y'all pass it around and smell this rose. And as they're passing it around, he starts giving out SCD facts and all that kind of stuff, and he's building up the picture of passing this rose around. And then he stops, and eventually, after he kind of lets it, lets it go through a little bit, and he says, where's my rose? Somebody bring that rose back up to me. And of course, they bring it up to him, and the rose is tattered and torn. And he holds up that rose and says, who would want this rose? And that challenge said, the anger that he felt about what this man was really saying. And he said to himself, restrained himself, Jesus would. Jesus would want that rose. Tattered, torn. Jesus wants that rose. Unlike the way we think. When we say that rose is not worth anything, Jesus says that is valuable to me. I want that. And the father comes out and kisses the son. But guess what? That's not all. The father says, hurry, bring that best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring that fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. It was lost. And is found. He says, go bring that robe. That robe of sonship. You are my son. I don't want you to have to clean up. I'm going to put on this best robe of sonship. And you are my son. He says, take this ring and put it on him. That ring that represents who that father is. He cannot go out and represent that father. He doesn't wait for him to prove himself. But he allows that son to carry out his business. You are restored to the family. He says, put a sandal on his feet. Only slaves walked around without sandals. And he says, I don't want anybody to think that this son of mine is a servant. And he puts on that, those sandals. Kill that fatted calf. Now the fatty cap was reserved for special situations, weddings, births. But here the son comes back and the father's like, this is worth it. Kill the fatty cap. Because we need to celebrate. If you were to interview that son after all this had happened to him, and you would ask him that same question, what does it feel like? Perhaps he might say something like this. 
For you, O Lord, are good, ready to forgive, abundant in love and kindness to all who call upon you. For you, O Lord, are good. God, you're good. You're so good to me that you will allow me to come back to you. That you are ready, just like that father, ready to forgive me. You're abundant. You see the overflow in love and kindness to all, all who call on you. Do you see his passion for the greatness of the gospel, of the good news? But the father and the older son are not the only ones in the story. There's still another individual. So let's get to that. Luke 15, 25. Now the older son was in the field. As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he, he called one of the slaves and asked, what happened? What was happening? And the son replied, your brother has returned. And your father has killed the fatted calf because... He got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your commandments. Yet you never give me even a goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who devoured your assets with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and to be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. So when we come to this older brother, he is standing outside of his father's joy. He's on the outskirts. If you see the picture, everybody else is partying. Music is loud. It's so loud you can hear their dancing from miles away. And this son hears about what the dance is about and refuses to go in. And he's standing outside of his father's door. But when you first come to him, what is he doing? He's working. That is what he prides himself on. He'll be the first one probably to tell you. He has been consistent for many years. He has worked hard. If the father has the command, he would, he would fulfill it. He was the ideal son from all indications. But remember what I said earlier, that selfishness and pride are two sides of the coin of sin. This brother is standing outside the father's presence and his joy because of pride. He doesn't share the heart of his father for the lost. As I read that story, I try to imagine the conversation between the, the older son and the slave. And he's like, what's going on? He says, your brother has, your brother has come back. He's alive. And I think about the story of um, Elizabeth Smart. Y'all familiar with that story? Elizabeth Smart was abducted from her house in Utah, taken away by a couple, gone for nine months, and found alive. And the joy that her family her siblings felt when she returned safe and sound. You would expect this brother, being the older brother, being protective. My brother's back. He's safe and sound. But no. He's not. He's not joyous about that. He refuses to go in. He is angry. And the curtain of his heart back. You get to see a little bit about what his heart looks like. 
outsides might look good, you get to see a little bit of what his heart looks like. The father is looking for the son to return. The older brother, he was the last one to realize his brother was back. He had to ask his servant. He wasn't looking. The father runs out to both of his sons. The son, the older son, he angrily refuses to celebrate his brother's return. The father graciously calls his son his son. After all the things that both sons have done to shame him, the father says, you are still my son. The older brother refuses to even call him his brother. He has shunned him. The father is concerned about the welfare of the son. My son is back. The older son, he's concerned about his brother's performance or lack of performance. The father is celebrating, believes that celebration is essential in this situation. The older son says that celebration is optional or not an option at all. He doesn't share the heart of the father for the lost. So why is this son not dancing? What is his deal? Why is he not dancing? Why is he not in the center of that dance floor, of that party, enjoying this return of his brother? Well, he relates to his father on the basis of duty. He says, look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you, and I never, and I never disobeyed your commandments. <clears throat> he kind of approaches God as an equation. I have done this, this, and this, and this equals this. Your son has done this, 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 so he, he equals gone. He doesn't deserve grace. I have earned grace. And this whole situation doesn't measure up. He has a slave's mentality. The oldest son relates to the father more like a slave master than a, a father's son. He has worked hard and long for the father. But his, father, uh, but his father's commands have been become burdensome. There's a slow anger stirring up within because it's all about what he's doing. Anything that he receives from his father is owed to him from his viewpoint. Therefore, when his brother is thrown a party, he's saying, this is not right. He has not earned it. I've earned it. And at first glance, you might say, you know what? He kind of has a good argument. He has done pretty well. He never went out and spent the inheritance like his brother did. But if you say that, you're not getting it. This is a quote from Piper. You are still thinking in the old way of master-slave works, not the Christian way of father-child faith. The question isn't whether the son really has kept the commandments, which he hasn't. The question is whether the father wants to be related to as a commander to a slave. Piper gives a great analogy in his book of um, Desiring God of uh, a husband who comes home maybe it's Valentine's, he comes home with a big old handful of roses and he walks up to his wife and says, honey, it's my duty to give you this. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> and what wife wants to be related to that way? In the sense of, you have to do this. She probably would throw him out of the house. Dude, it's my duty to get you out of here. <laughs> my wife wants to be related to you like that. And God doesn't want to be related to you like that. God does not want to be related on the basis of a sense of duty, but rather because you've seen his goodness, you've seen his grace, and you delight to be in his presence because of his goodness. 
You desire to do things because you love them. The first John 5 passage that's talking about if you love God, you're going to love your brother. It goes on to say, for this is, this is love of God. This is the love of God or the love for God. This is how we know that you love God. That you keep his commandments and his commandments do not weigh us down. You think of the word commandments, and I remember back in that day, it was like, okay, commandments, I think commandments, oh, I don't like commandments. Commandments are burdensome. But it's a different deal when you're doing something for somebody who you love. Those kind of acts are not burdensome. They're a delight. God wants us to love him by keeping his commandments. And those commandments are not burdensome. These are out of heart love, not duty. There are many genuine Christians who are elder brother-ish. If you came to Christ out of being a younger brother, there's always that danger of being of being pulled back to addiction or other brotherly sins. But if you come, if you became a Christian out of being an older brother, an elder brother, you can even more easily slide back into elder brother attitudes and spiritual deadness. If you have not grasped the gospel fully, deeply, you will return to being condescending, condemning, Anxious, insecure, joyous, angry, all of the time. Not fully grasping the truth of the gospel. Based upon grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift. That's a quote from Kelly. And finally, the son is blind to his own goodness. Says, but when the son of that son of yours came back, who devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatty calf. The other day, Sage came up to me and he asked me, "Hey, Dad, are we the good guys or the bad guys?" <laughs> I had to think about that. I was like, "Okay, I want my son to think that I'm I'm the good guy. I'm I'm Dad. I'm, I'm the hero." But the truth of it is. I'm the bad guy. Saved by grace. I am no different than the robbers. I am no different than the murderer, the rapist. I am somebody who is a sinner, saved by God's grace. And that is my position. I'm only elevated to that sonship because God has been gracious. The elder son sees himself as very different from the younger, from the, from the younger brother. Bob Deffenball has these six points. It says, both sons wanted to celebrate a banquet. Both sons wanted to celebrate without their father. Both sons seem to feel the joy and celebration, that joy and celebration were not possible with their father. <clears throat> Neither son seemed to really appreciate or love their father, even though he loved both of them. Both sons were slaves. The one son slaves to his selfishness, the other son slaves to his pride. Both sons were only concerned about what they got. Give me this. Give me that possession. It's all about their possession. It's all about God's presence or their father's presence. They wanted it away from his presence. Matthew 23, 27 says, Woe to you experts in the law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are all like whitewashed tombs. That look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead 
and of everything, and everything is unclean. But in the same way, on the outside you, you look righteous people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Convicting verse. Convicting verse. Yet in the story you, you see still the compassion that the father has for the older son. You see, the father came out to that older son. There's a party going on, and the father comes out to, to the older son. The father he comes out to the older son, and he pleads with his son. He doesn't come out to him and say, get back into the party, you're going to party with us now. Like I tend to try to do with my son. But he comes out and he pleads with his son. He says, son, please come enter into my joy. The father corrects his thinking about that slave mentality by saying, son, child, by calling him a son, calling him a child, you are not a slave. You don't relate to me like a slave. You are my son. The father says, you are always with me. Everything that belongs to me is yours. What a gracious statement from a father to a prideful son who is entitled that you are always with me and everything that belongs to me that's yours. Come on in. Enter my joy. Find satisfaction in me and all my grace. And all I have is yours. Many of us have known the Lord for a long time. I accepted the Lord as my Savior when I was five. And for those of us who have known the Lord for a long time, do we still share that passion for the lost? Is that fresh? I remember I, I, I did recruiting with a guy who just came to know the Lord at Emmaus. And that guy was on fire for the Lord. Witnessing here and there, and everybody's talking to you about God's goodness and the greatness of his gospel. And I tended to be quiet about it. I wasn't as excited about it. He had joy of his salvation. I was just kind of, hmm. Do you have the same heart for God, that compassion that the Father has? Are you not ex expressing or even experiencing that joy, remembering that joy of your salvation? Many of us come to salvation who uh, came to salvation a long time ago. Many when you were young. And many of us have not experienced the big sins. I remember, again, doing testimonies with this guy. He had all this grand story about all these things. And I had him, hey, Lord, that's it, thanks. Now go sit down. And the tendency is to be condemning. Condescending. When you have that, that breath of experience. Because you've never done those things. That's not in your story. So leaning towards pride. Many of us have deep secrets that maybe we're holding today. Sins that have caused us great shame and have kept us from enjoying our Father. Jesus says, I accept you. Come to me. Let me wrap my arms around you, lay on your neck, give you that kiss. Your brothers and sisters, has your heart grown cold? Would people describe your life as a joyful life? Have you lost your concern, concern for the lost? Have you been relating to God like a slave to a master? Things you do, coming to church, reading your Bible, there's no passion of heart. Remember where you came from. 
Remember that you were dead in your sins, hopeless. Come back, rejoice that Father. If you have never accepted Christ, amazing gift of salvation that we talk about in the story. This amazing, gracious Father. If you don't know Him, if you can't call God your Father, Jesus longs for you to come. You see in the story there is a sacrifice that had to be made in order for them to celebrate. There's a fat cat that needed to be shed. In order for us to celebrate, Jesus Christ had to pay for our sins. For us to be able to enter into that joy of the Father. Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. I plead with you on the behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. God made the one who did no sin be sin for us, so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. What an awesome, awesome, awesome salvation we have for those of you who are in Christ. If that doesn't make us want to dance, what will? If that doesn't thrill your heart to know your proper position, where you were, where you were going, a God who has come and rescued you and brought you out of that. I pray that we will remember how good the gospel is. Then, Father, Lord, we just thank you that you're a compassionate, compassionate Father. Thank you that you cared for us so much that you sent your only son so that we can be right with you. The Lord, that we can have joy that comes from you. So that we can share with others about the great salvation that you have given to us. Lord, capture our affections for you. Lord, make us people just enjoy your gospel message and just see that and remember. Pray that this week that we will be people who will go out and share your gospel. Be concerned about the lost. Be accepted as you accepted us. We're going to pray this in Jesus' name.